All right, Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. A case of mistaken identity can have very serious consequences. Like the time I accidentally wore a pair of khakis and a blue polo shirt into Best Buy. I was automatically given so much power and credibility. But I had to keep telling people, I don't work here. I only dress like it. Well, in our study of the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been methodically and intentionally building a case for the identity of Jesus. And the reason Mark does this is because people then just like people today get the identity of Jesus wrong all the time. When we get the identity of Jesus wrong, we always get it wrong in the same consistent direction. We always think less of Jesus than who he truly is. No one automatically overestimates Jesus. The error is always in making him less than, weaker than what he truly is. And there are very real consequences for when we treat Jesus and think of him as less than who he is. And there are incredible blessings when we understand the fullness of who he is and connect our lives to him. The passage we're studying this morning is the first time the spotlight turns full blast on the disciples who are with Jesus. They've popped up here and there throughout Mark's gospel, most notably in Jesus' callings of them to follow him. Uh, But this is the first time there's been a real interaction in print between Jesus and his disciples. And it all revolves around their misunderstanding, their lessening of the identity of Jesus. So up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has interacted with a lot of different people. He's interacted with a group we just call the crowds. He's interacted with sick people. He's interacted with demon-possessed people. He's interacted with Jewish religious authorities. And each of these groups largely misunderstand Jesus. There's practically no one at this point who truly understands who he is and what he's about, what it means for him to be Messiah if they even use that term to describe him. You see, the crowds flock to Jesus for the show. Sick people come to him because they find him to be a miracle worker. The demons act as if they can control him. And the Jewish authorities accuse him of being in league with Satan. In fact, they're actively plotting his death. The disciples have witnessed all of these interactions, all of the miracles as well, And our story today leaves the disciples with this one burning question, who is this? With all they've seen so far, all they've heard, still they are asking the question, who is this? And that's the question we're going to answer today. My goal today in preaching this passage is to give you a clearer picture of who Jesus is. Indeed, I want to elevate your understanding of Jesus. If it is deficient in some way, it is deficient in the negative. We must elevate our picture of Jesus, our understanding of Him, so that we might trust Him. As a believer, you might trust Him more with a purer faith for issues related to your sanctification or for your endurance, your battle against sin, whatever the situation might be. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I am so glad you get to see this story today 
and let Jesus speak for himself because you also are going to be confronted with this question, who is this? I have a very real agenda this morning, just like Mark, and that agenda is that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation and boldly commit every day to follow him in faith. So to accomplish this, I want to answer the question, who is this, in three parts. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Mark writes, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, that's Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm he said to his disciples why are you so afraid do you still have no faith they were terrified and asked each other who is this even the wind and the waves obey him i hope that through our study of mark's gospel you're falling in love with mark as a storyteller he gives us such interesting details now, according to Mark, all of chapter 4 happens in a single day. So if you remember, chapter 4 opens with Jesus teaching a, a large crowd by the Sea of Galilee. The crowd is so large, he has to get into a boat, and he teaches everyone on the shore from the safety of this boat just pushed a little bit out into the water. And so he teaches in parables. He gives multiple parables here in chapter 4. And then our story picks up at the end of that day. So Mark tells us that they're going to the other side of the sea. Why are they doing that? Probably because back in chapter 1, Jesus said his mission was to preach the good news of God in all of these villages. This is just what Jesus does. He's not going to stay in one place for long. He's going to get up and he's going to go and he's going to preach some more about the kingdom of God. So they get in the boat and they leave. Uh, we're told that they take Jesus just as he was. Now, what I think that means is that the boat Jesus taught from is the boat he stays in as they go across the Sea of Galilee. I think that's what just as he was means. And so, verse 36, they're moving across the Sea of Galilee, and there's this other interesting detail. It tells us that there are also other boats with him. So, again, what I think that means is that these other boats are like the crowds who have been pursuing Jesus from place to place. He, he can't even get alone with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. There's going to be this little armada of looky-loos sailing along them as Jesus tries to get to the other side of the sea. It's in the midst of this scene that this enormous storm comes up, and uh, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and our story begins to unfold here where Jesus begins to reveal himself. The disciples begin to learn just exactly who he is. So who is Jesus? Let me give you three parts to this answer. If you're taking notes, number one, Jesus is 
the sovereign God who perfects our faith. Jesus is the sovereign, let me spell that for you, S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. English is stupid. The sovereign God who perfects our faith, verses 35 through 38. Often when we approach stories like this that involve a storm, we're quick to make it a metaphor. And so we'll boil its meaning down to a cliche like this. Jesus is going to see you through the storms of life. But this is not a how-to lesson in how to get through hard times. In fact, I want to argue that Jesus puts the disciples in the path of this storm intentionally. Verse 35 tells us this. It says that Jesus is the one who initiated the trip. He's the one that said to his disciples after a long day of teaching and ministry, let's go over to the other side. So Jesus is the one who gets things going to begin with. And we already know from Mark that Jesus has knowledge that the disciples do not. Jesus knows exactly what the weather forecast is. If he can read a man's heart, he can read the elements. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But why would Jesus put the disciples in the path of this storm? It's not to invoke fear. It's certainly not to punish them. But it's to develop their faith. The same thing happened in the Old Testament to a man named Jonah. In fact, this story about this storm and the story of Jonah and his storm are often compared. And there are a few similarities. Both stories have huge storms in which people fear for their lives. In each story, the main characters are asleep and have to be awakened. Uh, In each story, the storms die down miraculously. There's one other similarity that I find significant between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus and the disciples in Mark 4. That similarity is this. There is intentionality in the storm. It's not an accident and it's not punishment. It's God's sovereign, intentional act. When we think about Jonah, we think about it this way most often. Uh, Jonah, as you'll remember, was given a commissioned by God to go speak God's judgment to the people of Nineveh. Jonah wants no part of that, so he flees in the opposite direction, and he gets on a boat and sails towards a town called Tarshish. And it's while he's on that boat that the storm comes up, and then Jonah, when he's awakened, tells the other sailors on the boat, if you'll throw me overboard, the storm will stop. And that's exactly what happens. The way we so often interpret that storm is this is God's punishment. If Jonah had gone the right direction, he wouldn't be in the storm. But since he's made this mistake, committed this disobedience, God is punishing him. But that storm is not punishment. That storm is God's grace that gets Jonah back into the path of God's will. The worst thing God could have done for Jonah in that story is give him safe passage to Tarshish. It's God's grace that sends the storm, that gets Jonah in the water, that gets him back into Nineveh. Although it's an unconventional path, it still is God's grace that gets Jonah back in line with God's will. There was intentionality in the storm. The sovereign God sent the storm to develop Jonah's faith in his obedience. 
And that's exactly what happens here on the Sea of Galilee this day in Mark chapter 4. This storm is not just a mere accident. It's by the design of the sovereign creator who puts it in the path of his disciples that they would learn to trust him. So this is not a story about Jesus getting you through the storm. It's a story about Jesus changing you from within the storm. The Christian who knows Jesus for who he is can face every hardship in the confidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the confidence that he is the sovereign God who moves all the pieces according to his good and perfect will. If we think of Jesus as less than sovereign, then chaos reigns. God is not in control And we will assume that certain situations are evidence that Satan is winning. But our God is so in control that he uses those things the enemy intends for our downfall to accomplish his perfect will in the world and in our lives. The sovereignty of Christ is sweet comfort when nothing else makes sense. When we don't have easy answers when all we can do is take one step at a time without a clear sense of the destination we're headed towards, there is comfort in knowing that even in our most critical moments, God is our help and our healer. Who is Jesus? He is the sovereign God who is perfecting our faith, who is putting us in situations intentionally that we would love him and trust him through and through. There's more to this portrait of Jesus in this brief story, though. Jesus is the sovereign God who perfects our faith. But there's a second thing we learn about Jesus in this story. Jesus is the almighty God with authority over all creation. Verse 39 spells this out for us. Jesus is the almighty God with authority over all creation. So this is a significant storm. The disciples are terrified And that ought to say something to us. At least a few of these disciples are seasoned fishermen. They've been in choppy waters. They've been in storms in their boats before, I would guess. And the fact that this storm scares them ought to communicate to us the seriousness of the situation. There's something big and bad that's going on here. And while the disciples are scared for their lives, what's Jesus doing? He's catching a nap. Do you know this is the only place in the entire New Testament where we get to see Jesus sleeping? It's the only place. And and I think it's intentional by Mark, and I think it's a beautiful detail, an eyewitness detail that comes into the story because it so perfectly portrays Jesus' humanity. The storm rages, Jesus sleeps, and then the disciples wake Jesus up with accusations. Do you even care if we drown, teacher? They don't gently nudge him and say, you might want to wake up. Would you please do something about this? We're really scared and don't know what to do. There's not a gentle request. It is a blatant accusation. They call him teacher. They don't call him master. Don't call him Lord. Don't call him Messiah. They call him teacher, which is the same title he gets from Pharisees and unbelieving crowds. Jesus responds to the storm in a way that is brief and effective. 
And what we read this morning, it's just three words. Quiet, be still. In the original Greek, it's just two words. Jesus spoke two words and everything stopped. What's interesting here is Jesus doesn't pray for the storm to stop. He doesn't say, oh, Father, would you please stop this storm and save us? He doesn't use a magical incantation or secret knowledge. He simply speaks the words and nature obeys its master. In the Old Testament, only God has authority over creation. Only God has power over the sea. Job 26, Isaiah 51, we read on the front end of this service from Psalm 107, only God has this kind of power over creation. So what does this moment tell us about Jesus? He's more than a man. He is, in fact, divine. And not divine in some little bit. He is fully God. In fact, He is the God of creation. The fact that He is the Creator God permeates the Gospels, permeates the New Testament. In fact, it's the way the Apostle John opens his Gospel. You remember these words in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word. He's speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Here's Jesus, the Creator God, His power and might on full display. Throughout Mark's Gospel so far, He's been building a case for the authority of Jesus bit by bit. So what we've seen in our study so far is that Jesus has authority to call disciples to follow Him, to call people to reorient their lives around Him, He has authority to cast out demons, authority to heal disease. He has authority to forgive sins in chapter 2. You remember that scene? He has authority to use the Sabbath for his own good purposes and not be um, uh, weighted down under rules that have nothing to do with righteousness. And then here in chapter 4, we get another aspect of his authority. A tremendous, a huge aspect of his authority. What do you call the one who has authority over the spiritual world, who has the authority to forgive sins, the authority and power to heal disease and sickness, and has authority over nature itself? What do you call that one? You call that one God. Not teacher. God. The implications of this are monumental. Since Jesus is the Creator God, it means that He sets the rules, the guidelines for His creation. And what He says about His creation is true and trustworthy. The way He tells us to live in His created order, to orient our lives, to live in relationship with each other, to conduct our lives, to think, to speak, to act, all of these things that the Creator God gives us are true and trustworthy, and these are the ways in which we excel in His creation. So we should listen to Him, and we should obey. We shouldn't expect Jesus to bend to our understanding of things, our cultural approach to life and creation, but rather He sets the pace. He's the creator. He's the one that tells us how to live our lives, how to follow him. And if he is the creator God who possesses all authority, 
then what he says about salvation is also true and trustworthy. You may not be a follower of Jesus, and one of the reasons you may not be, something that might be hard for you, it's hard for many people, is the sense of exclusivity in Christianity. What I mean by that is we believe what Jesus says when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so it can be hard to think, well, how can this be so exclusive? How can he keep people out? How can he, he won't let other people in? Surely there's many roads up this mountain, and Jesus is just our name for the one God who's God to everyone in different manifestations. But when you see Jesus for who he is and what he claims of himself and in what he does, you're left with no other alternative but to rejoice in the fact that this is very God and he has made himself known to us. And it's not bad news that there aren't all these roads up the mountain. The good news is there is one God who has made himself known and he has destroyed the mountain and descended to us. He's come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what makes the story of Christianity so different from every other story. We're not scaling a mountain. We can barely walk on flat ground. It's Christ who destroys the boundaries between creation and creator, who redeems and heals and forgives and saves all those who trust in him. It's good news that our creator God has made himself known to us and that he has spoken about salvation. Not only has he spoken about salvation, but he has done what is required for our salvation. Our time together this morning is not about doing what we need to do to win God's favor. The fact that Christ came to us and that we have these words here are already signs of his favor. The fact that we know the story and the way of salvation are signs of his favor. It is to us to believe, to trust him, to turn our lives to him. And he promises that all those who come to him in faith will be saved. He is the sovereign who orchestrates all these things. He is the almighty God, the creator of all things. There's one more part to this portrait of Jesus in our story. Jesus is the gracious God who replaces our fear with faith. He is the gracious God who replaces our fear with faith. In verses 40 and 41 here at the end of the story. So Jesus has spoken to the storm and now he turns and speaks to the disciples and he asks them two questions. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Let's wrestle with both of those questions for a moment. First, why are you so afraid? What a piercing question. Why would they be afraid of the storm outside the boat when they had the Creator inside the boat? But they didn't trust Jesus like that. They had a lesser view of Him. And it could be for any number of reasons. In reality, they won't fully understand who He is until they get to the other side of the resurrection. They walk with Jesus with a clouded knowledge, an imperfect knowledge. Even up to the night before his crucifixion and in the days after his crucifixion, the disciples operate in a lack of faith. 
That's why one of them has the nickname Doubting Thomas. They work for a long time with this clouded understanding of who he is. So there's part of this that's just natural. That's just the way it is. But still, Jesus asks the question as if to assume that they should not operate in fear. They shouldn't be defined by their fear of the outside world beyond Jesus. They should have confidence in him. And so we learn an important lesson from the disciples here. Make no mistake, a deficient view of Jesus will always result in fear. A deficient view of Jesus will always result in fear. When we think of him as low, small, weak, teacher only, then we will cower in the face of even the smallest trials. We will not trust him as we ought to. When Jesus decreases, fear increases. Why are you so afraid? That's an important question for someone here today. Second question he asks is, do you still have no faith? What is faith? Let's be very clear. If you're new to the church, you may be familiar with the term, you may not understand it, or you may use the term all the time and still not fully process it. When we talk about faith, in general, you know, faith is trust or confidence in a certain thing that it will do what it's supposed to do. You had faith in the pew you sat in today. Now, you didn't articulate that before you sat down. You just sat down because you have faith that it's going to hold you up. Myself, I'm hard on furniture, so I test things. I want to be careful before I commit. But you just sat down in the confidence and the faith that the pew would do what the pew was supposed to do, and so far, success. That's good news. So that's faith in a general sense. And Christians think about faith in a very specific way, similar to that. In the Christian sense, faith is targeted towards God. And that faith towards God trusts that Christ's death and resurrection are able to save us. And then faith commits us to follow Jesus. Jesus asks the question, do you still have no faith? He has the expectation, it would seem, that by this point, considering all the disciples had seen and heard, they should trust Jesus more. They should trust Him boldly. They shouldn't wake Him with an accusation. They should trust Him in the midst of this scenario, not just this individual scenario, but in all of the things they're facing. Can we be honest? Life is a storm. Not storms. This side of heaven, life is a storm. Do you still not have faith? They responded to this moment like practical atheists, as if there is no God. Or if there is a God, He's far away and weak. There's a problem with their faith. Now again, in case you're new here, here's something we say often about faith. So many times people will talk about faith in terms of amount, as if a lot of faith is preferable to a little faith, but that's not how faith functions. That's an improper understanding of faith. What makes faith effective is not the amount of faith, but the ability of the object your faith is in to deliver. So focus is what is most important. 
Your faith in Christ is effective and powerful, not because you have a lot of it, but because Jesus is utterly powerful and capable and good. You can have a lot of faith in a broken pew to hold you up. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have, the pew's not going to deliver on the promise you want. But if you've got a little bit of faith, say the size of a mustard seed, in Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign, creator, gracious God, you can say to this mountain, go for a swim, and it'll do it. It's the object of our faith that matters most supremely. So you can evaluate the focus of your faith by checking your fear level. When your faith in Jesus is set, fear will be done away with. The year was 1954, and Martin Luther King Jr. had moved to Montgomery, Alabama to become the pastor, his only pastorate, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And when he took this position, he was just finishing up his Ph.D. at Boston University, moves back here to Montgomery, and his intention was to be the best pastor he could. At this point in time, he didn't have visions of being a civil rights crusader. But then, Montgomery resident Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat at the front of the bus. And a group was formed called the Montgomery Improvement Association, and they asked King if he would be the leader of the group. And he reluctantly agreed because he was promised, hey, we're going to have a boycott, it'll just be one day, and then it'll be all done. Uh, But two years later, he's still the head of the Montgomery um, Improvement Association, and things had not improved. In fact, it seemed things had gotten worse. His leadership, uh, he had no confidence in his own leadership, and so in a moment of desperation, he offers his resignation, but it was refused. That didn't bolster his confidence. He was still despondent and felt like he was a failure And it was just a few weeks after that that he returned home late at night. His wife and child were already in bed. And he returned home at the end of this long day of meetings, and his phone rang, and on the other end was an anonymous, threatening voice. It wasn't the first time, uh, according to the author of the book that tells this story. uh, He was getting those phone calls 30 and 40 times a day. But for whatever reason, on this night, this one stuck. So here he is in a crisis of leadership, a crisis of confidence, doubt and fear in himself, doubt and fear that things are going to change, getting threats late at night, and he couldn't sleep. So he put on a pot of coffee, and he sat at his kitchen table with his face in his hands, and he prayed. And by his own account, he said he had come to the end of his strength, but then in this moment, He said, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me alone. The voice of Jesus was more convincing than the voice of the anonymous caller. King's faith in Christ left no room for fear, and King pressed on. You can trust Jesus. He is so good. He loves you. He doesn't want you to walk in fear. He wants you to have courage that comes from trusting in Him. 
I love how this story ends. Verse 41 says that the disciples were terrified. The story opens with them being afraid of the storm. Now they're terrified of the one who quieted the storm. They asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Wind and waves obey Jesus. The big question is, will people? Isn't it interesting the disciples witnessed this miracle? But in this moment, the miracle did not bring them peace and it did not produce faith. Our disciples have more growing to do and so do we. So it's wonderful that Jesus gives such grace to these stubborn disciples and to this stubborn disciple as well. How wonderful is it that Jesus doesn't just toss them out of the boat, but he perseveres with them. And he encourages them. And he nourishes their faith in him. He is sovereign and almighty and gracious and so kind to us in our weakness. So our passage this morning has asked the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? Here's what we've seen. A portrait in three parts. He is the sovereign God who adds purpose to our hardships that we might grow rather than atrophy. He is the almighty creator God whose authority is absolute and trustworthy. He is the gracious God who replaces our fear with faith. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, this is a story for you. This is a story for disciples, for those on the inside, so to speak. Those on the inside also struggle with faith. We struggle to have a right view of Jesus. So many times our situations, which are so serious and so all-encompassing, may make us believe Jesus to be lesser than what he is. But sister, brother, will you trust today in the sovereign, creator, gracious God who knows you by name and loves you all the way. Even though you don't have the answers, even though you don't know how this is going to work out, and you've got every reason to be afraid, would you let faith in your good God cast out every bit of fear in your life? We've got to trust Him. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then guess what? This story we've studied this morning is just for you because you're confronted with this question who is Jesus and the reality is this you, you might be a non-believer who knows it or you might be a non-believer who doesn't know it you might be someone with a low view of Jesus and a high view of ceremony and ritual thinking that these are the things that do the saving But what what you do with Jesus is what makes all the difference in your eternity. Catholic, Protestant, baptized as a baby, baptized as a believer, none of that makes a bit of difference apart from your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. What saves you is faith in Him who did more than quiet a storm. You think quieting a storm is impressive He'll go much farther than that. He goes all the way to the cross. 
He sacrificed himself so you could be saved. His death was in your place for your sin. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and promised that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. The call of this story to you today is to trust in him. You have a fuller picture of the identity of Jesus than the disciples did at this point in their history with him. You know not only the storm, but you know the cross, you know the empty tomb, and what's more, you know how this story ends. Christ victorious, reigning supreme forevermore. And he calls you to leave behind your fear. He calls you to leave behind your sin and to turn your life and trust him. I want you to do that today. I don't, I don't know how anything could be more important than eternity. And so when we're done with everything this morning, there are going to be some sweet people standing in this right-hand corner over here. We call them our prayer team, and they would love to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if this is the moment where Christ awakens faith in you and you're ready to say yes to him, then they'll be glad to help you in that. Or you may be with someone today that you know as a believer. Talk to them. Or you may just sit there in the quiet of your own seat while everyone else is scurrying about and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Your life will be changed today and forever at this moment that the sovereign Christ has orchestrated for your salvation. Turn to Jesus today. Put your faith in him, and he's going to give you smooth sailing, though the storm rages. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we confess that we are like these disciples. Uh, We are people with weak faith very often with weak faith. We confess that so many times we think of Jesus as less than who he truly is. We confess that we give more credibility to our trials than we do to our resurrected king. We confess that we operate in so much fear. So, Lord God, hear our confession today. And would you help us as we turn in repentance to trust in you? Would you give bold faith this morning to the friend in here that does not know you as their Savior, but today is going to say yes to you? Let this be the moment their life changes as they trust in the sovereign, creator, gracious God who knows them by name. And I pray for my brothers and sisters whose faith has lost focus For whatever reason, let us set our eyes on you, that we will give a witness to the world of your enduring faithfulness and love and goodness, that we would not walk in fear, but in the joy of the Lord that surpasses all understanding, that we would worship in a sense of supernatural peace, because our deliverance is now and not yet. Lord, let us walk in faith, bold, unwavering faith in our good and trustworthy Savior. Have your way in us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.